you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. You know, passion drives this business, and I'm so excited to bring you this episode because I'm speaking with Mr. Sal Lupoli, who is the founder of Sal's Pizza and the Lupoli Companies. And we're going to talk all about how we can scale a single location into multiple locations, the importance of having multiple profit centers the leverage and economies that come from growing that business and how you can control your destiny by owning the real estate and the importance of owning your real estate, taking a stance for quality and the customer experience. But most of all, this episode is about leadership and how you inspire your people, how you recognize, you develop, you train, you motivate, and you reward those people for great performance. That's leadership by example, and Sal is the epitome of that quality. So stay tuned in this episode. There are so many key learnings. Just listen on. Fellow operators and managers, forget the old way of doing business. It's time to automate your back of house. To reduce food costs, optimize labor, increase efficiencies, and grow sales and profits, you need a system. The one simple system that does it all is called Restaurant 365. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, restaurant-specific, all-in-one accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates your POS, payroll provider, and all your vendors. Use it to generate accurate, user-friendly, real-time reports to make immediate data-driven decisions. Restaurant 365 eliminates manual, error-prone processes and is designed to grow with your business. Restaurant 365 handles inventory management and helps reduce food costs. It streamlines the payables management process and automates bank reconciliations, while the scheduling feature engages employees and helps reduce labor costs. To run a stronger, more efficient restaurant, take a closer look at Restaurant 365. Check it out at www.restaurant365.com forward slash rockstar. Guys, it's no secret that labor is a huge challenge right now. But putting help wanted signs in the window is not the way to find great people, especially if you're looking to fill positions in multiple locations. Instead, the answer is Fountain. Fountain is the all-in-one talent platform, especially built for teams hiring at scale. See why over 5,000 businesses, including Burger King, KFC, Taco Bell, and more, are using Fountain to find, hire, and onboard new employees today. With Fountain, you can find more quality experienced candidates faster. You can shorten the time to hire and the employee onboarding process. You can track cost per hire and time per hire. Get automated SMS communication and automated document collection. Head on over to www.fountain.com forward slash rockstars and receive a demo plus free personal onboarding, a $500 value just for becoming a new Fountain customer. Check it out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and these are engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. Today, I'm pleased to have a multifaceted entrepreneur, Mr. Sal Lupoli. He is the CEO and founder of not only Sal's Pizza, but the the Lupoli Companies. Welcome to the show today, Sal. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Roger. I appreciate it. 
Well, you've got quite a story, Sal. You've grown a business from an original pizza location, the freshest pizza possible in New England, to a multifaceted real estate development and wholesale and grocery company. You have a commissary that services all your stores. I want to get into all this, but let's start. I can't help but ask you, you have an Italian heritage. Um, Does it go back to the old country way back? It actually does, my friend. Uh, first of all, I am second generation. Our family is from the Naples region in the Avellino area, a little bit of Rome and some Sicily on my mother's side. But having said that, I'm a product of East Boston, Massachusetts, and people might know where that is because that's where you land when you come into Massachusetts at, at Logan Airport. Yes, I absolutely am familiar with Boston. I lived just up the street from Fenway Park many years ago. It's a oh, great wow. city. One of my favorites to this day. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. I actually had the opportunity to live in Milan, Italy for a summer back wow. in 1988 when I was in graduate school. I did an internship for a company based in Milan, and that was an experience that shaped my life, and it led to me starting pizzerias of my own. And interestingly, you mentioned Naples or Napoli because that is the birthplace of what we know as pizza today. And that has sort of shaped the culture of the food. And uh, let me tell you a brief story. And I'm quite proud of this, actually, because I had very basic Italian skills after living there. I could, I could communicate you know, with people uh, on a basic level. But we were starting our wood-fired pizza, and this goes back to 19... 19- Oh, 95, I believe. We had just started. And in 1996, I took a trip to Napoli because there was a magazine that featured the oldest pizzeria on the planet that has been passed down from generation to generation that still exists today. And pizza is everywhere in Naples, Italy, as you know. And I walked into this place with my business partner and we taught, you know, in my basic Italian, I said, you know, we, we're starting this pizzeria in, in the United States and we'd really like to do things the authentic Neapolitan way. And they invited us back behind the counter. and We actually made pizza with them for a couple hours, which was a really cool thing. That is a very cool thing. But I think that's part of the tradition of in uh, the culture of Italy. You know, it's about food. It's about family. It's about embracing. It's about helping. So I'm not surprised, although I'm excited because you were able to bring something old world recipes back to the United States. Yes. And some, well, we had a wood burning brick oven, of course, and that was part of the tradition. And they taught us a few secrets that uh, we didn't share with anyone else, but we (laughs) thought that was a unique marketing hook. And we printed that on all our pizza boxes. And, you know, we made pizza in the oldest pizzeria on the planet and who else can say that and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that was our marketing shtick back in the day. Anyway, let's dive into Sal's. You started the original location in Salem, New Hampshire, early 90s, I guess it was? That's correct. I, uh, I attended Northeastern University. I got a degree in business management. And while I was at Northeastern, I, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't really know what to do. So I went to the best advisors in my life. What did I do? I went to my mother and father and I asked them their advice. And my father gave me a little advice about the food business. He was in the food business along the lines of large-scale restaurants. That's something I didn't want to do at the time or really understand. So my father gave me some great advice. Why don't you research at Northeastern University? I had some great professors, and that's what I did. I went to my professor, and I talked about the different aspects of businesses to go into within the food industry, and we kind of whittled it down to the pizza business. I had no experience in the pizza business. I had no understanding. There was no grandma's recipe, no stores existed. 
it was just a concept that I thought I could scale very quickly. It was a concept that I thought I could control the food costs, still work at a relatively low food cost margin. And as a result, put a plan together, classic hub and spokes model. And I was doing things back then that not a lot of people were doing back then, but I started looking for a location about six months before I graduated. And six months after I graduated from Northeastern, my diploma was hanging over my oven. And I was in a business that I had no understanding of, but other than hard work. So you mentioned early influences, this being, you know, part of your heritage as well as, you know, your family had a food enterprise of, of some sort. Did you, would you say uh, that you had uh, an interest in the business or any sort of passion or that came later? You just saw the opportunity first. It really started with the opportunity, but to kind of take a step back a little bit and talk about culture, because I think that is important. You know, our greatest memories in our life, where are they really centered around as we grow up? They're centered around, hopefully, the kitchen table, right? Where you eat and you listen, and you learn from experiences from a guardian or your parents. And it was during those wonderful times in my life that I got great advice, but also enjoyed food because the culture that I come from or the culture that I have, food is very centric to our well-being, our life. So many times around that table, we would be talking about businesses or different types of things, and always food was a part of it. So it felt like a natural transition. It felt like I had a level of confidence. It's something I enjoyed to be around. It made me feel good, right? Food makes you feel good when you're eating it and you're enjoying it with family members. And that's really how it started. You're absolutely right about that. That's how we feel about dinners and, and you know, family meals and, and get-togethers and all that sort of thing. It's absolutely centric to the family unit and the influences that you share with your children, the life lessons learned. A lot of that happens around the dining table. That's right. I believe in that. So let's talk about starting that first location. You mentioned that you were scouting locations before you graduated. You opened that first location. Was it... Uh, a, you know, a full-serve sit-down operation? Was it a counter-serve only? Did it evolve over the years? Uh, how did that start? So, Roger, while at Northeastern University, I started to write business papers and I started to speak to my professors about after we decided that it was going to be the pizza business, Roger, what was going to separate Sal's Pizza from everyone else? And so we really came up with three basic parts of the business plan. We came up with size, we came up with quality and we came up with price. And we really felt if you had, and today in society, you can actually be extremely successful having one out of three of those. Um, the most expensive steak, a la carte, but it's the tasty. It's, for example, Capital Grill, you're going to pay all the money. Everything is a la carte, but the steak is phenomenal. You can be very successful. You could go to a successful buffet, uh, a lot of food. Uh, relatively inexpensive. Maybe the quality isn't what you expect it to be, but you could be very successful with two out of three. Roger, what would happen if you had three out of three? What would happen if you had size, quality, and price? And that was my focus because within the hospitality industry, within the pizza business, I really felt if you created everything from scratch, pure olive oil, the best semolina on the market, uh, grind your own cheese, use fresh tomatoes and grind them up, if you start with the best ingredients and you can control that by you do the, doing the work yourself, and those are kind of uh, the three staffs of life, right? Tomatoes, flour, cheese, you can still purchase them relatively inexpensive. 
if you can put those components together, you can really capture those three parts of the, the business plan that we spoke about. And I really felt that we could do all the business. But what was interesting back then, today it's very common. Uh, my vision from the very beginning was to create a commissary. Now, back in 1990, Roger, you know, people didn't even understand what the word commissary was back in 89 and 90. You know, and I always, always referenced that example by saying Dunkin' Donuts was still making donuts in every one of their locations. So the commissary concept was just starting to come on board. And I said to myself, if we can create a commissary, we can open these satellite retail stores, uh, classic hub and spokes model, and be able to open these stores much quicker, much less inexpensive. Why? Smaller kitchens, smaller establishments. But the very first store we aimed, or I aimed at that very much the same concept. But I'll tell you what, Roger, it was very challenging opening the first store, which was in Salem, New Hampshire. The whole store was 700 square feet. I literally sold my car to open the first store. I come from a big Italian family, six boys in our family. My father was disabled most of his life. My mother was much of the provider in our family. So, you know, we learned how to stretch a dollar uh, as best you can. But we also learned that, you know, if you're going to step out and do something, you have to be prepared to do all the work. I'm getting the fact that you had a vision right from the get-go of where you wanted it to go, and it wasn't limited to that single store. You're always thinking several miles ahead, and we talked about competitive advantages, those three competitive advantages, but then the commissary was such a bigger concept because now we're talking about vertically integrating a business where you're now providing you know, at economies of scale and leverage to all the multiple stores, and now... It was key to me that you said now the, the spaces can be smaller because they're not producing everything from scratch in-house. It's all being provided fresh, of course, but still from the commissary. I think this is brilliant. I mean, it's, you're applying you know, really amazing um, opportunities to a business, and that helped you scale it quickly. Um, with that said, and I don't mean if you had a comment to that, I certainly want to hear it, but I'm also interested to learn how long it took you to open the next door and the next door and the next door after the first one and where the locations proceeded to go from there. Well, I think what's very important is when I first opened the very first store, and I say this with such conviction and such pride, but with great humility, which was this, the first day I opened, I said to myself, okay, Really, what is the exit strategy to this? Because being in the food business is an incredibly challenging business. Much like you might, might assume, I was open seven days a week, averaged 15 hours a day. And, and I don't say that for a pat on the back. I just say that because the food business, um, once you get to scale, it, it takes on a different life form. Getting the food business is really a labor of love. And it's, it's a young person's business. It's a young man or woman's business. A lot of hours, a lot of standing on your feet, a lot of grueling. But what, what, what I did in the very beginning was, my concept was, what about, and I always had an affinity for real estate, what about if I buy locations, small stores? And back in the 1990, there was the savings and loan crisis. There was a lot of- I remember that. Available. Interest rates were uh, relatively high back then. But what was important was there was a, a, a real inventory of real estate, especially small pieces of real estate that people walked away or they were unable to hold on to. So I said, as a business plan from the very beginning, Roger, imagine going to lenders or bankers or 
foreclosed pieces of real estate, purchasing the real estate and be able to have a conversation with our lender to say, I have a business tomorrow that's going to go into this. I'm not specking the real estate. I'm not one of those people that are going to invest in a piece of real estate and hope somebody comes and rents it. I will have this signed lease tomorrow in this real estate. So it was a little easier for the lenders to look at me uh, with that concept. So to answer your question directly, nine months after I opened my first location, I purchased my first retail store. Now we're talking about another important piece of advice that I always pass on to clients or listeners. It's control your destiny by owning the real estate. And that is super powerful because I'm sure as, as I have, I've seen many operators literally lose a prime location because the landlord or the owner of the property sees a higher and better use. And once the lease is up, you're done, even though you've built an established successful business there. And now you got to hope you can duplicate that somewhere else. It happens way too often. Roger, I want to focus on what you just said as a lesson to entrepreneurs within any industry, but we're talking about the food industry today. Everything you just said is spot on. When I have an opportunity to speak or educate, or if I'm at a university and I'm talking to the kids, I'll always preface by controlling your destiny. You can have a vision, a goal, a place that you want to be in a couple of years, but you really have to think longer than that. You have to think in years of five, really 20 years. And many of the visions that I have still today, they're 20 and 25 year visions. Because if you don't control your own real estate and you open a business, I promise you through your hard work, you'll blink and your lease will be up or the next increase will be there. And sometimes those increases, whether they're an adjustment to market rate, They take that small entrepreneur and most of the time they create a great hardship on that business. Therefore, you see a lot of turnover in our industry on those small locations, 2,000, 2,500 square feet. And you wonder where that great sandwich shop on the corner, where did Karen's sandwich shop or Joe's pasta place, where did they go? That's because of exactly what you just said. They did not control their destiny. They allowed the landlord to dictate. And once your landlord dictates to you, you're in a precarious situation, Roger. Well, I was in that situation myself 25 years ago. And I'll tell you a funny story, Sal. You might get a chuckle out of this. But I had very little, actually no, I I had bartending experience, but I really had no restaurant operations experience. I did have an MBA. And I saw an opportunity in a small town in Maine, and I wanted to start this first wood-fired pizzeria. So I wrote a business plan because I wanted to buy land and build a building and duplicate a concept that I had seen in Europe. And literally, my business plan asked for a million-dollar loan to buy this 10-acre piece of property and build the building and do that whole thing. And as you can imagine, the very first question that the lenders asked was, so how many restaurants have you ever owned or managed before? And I'm like, well, I've never been in the business before, but read the business plan. I got a great idea, you know? So I pretty much got laughed out of a lot of offices until I finally met a banker familiar with the opportunity in the area. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you a million bucks, but if you scale this thing way back, I might give you $150,000. And $150,000 doesn't go very far. So you end up on the wrong side of the railroad tracks in a building where the roof leaks and it needs a major renovation. You got to give it some curb appeal. And, but nonetheless, that was my humble start. And like you said, the lease was up in a heartbeat and the rent was going to go through the roof. And even though we built a successful business, the landlord looks at that like, oh, wow, you're doing great. So here comes your rent increase. 
And that's when we had that leverage of proving to the banker that we did what we said we could do. And that's when I bought 18 acres of property in a prime location and built the 8,000 square foot building with a million dollar loan so many years later. But it didn't start that way. So that's kind of my story. Well, it's eerie similar uh, uh, how we started. You know, you're absolutely right. Today, lenders, and I give advice to all entrepreneurs coming into the business, it's going to be incredibly challenging, especially today when the average retail food establishment is between 2,000 and 2,500 square feet. It takes roughly a year and a half to permit and, and operate and open the store and build it out. And it's averaging a half a million dollars. Those are serious numbers today. And based on those numbers today, it's incredibly challenging to go to a bank and get them to invest. Restaurants are probably one of the least uh, attractive businesses that lenders like to invest in. And, And even if they do, they crank up the amortization, they crank up the life of that loan, as opposed to giving you more time to be established, they make it in shorter time. So they put an incredible amount of pressure on the entrepreneur. So I, uh, I give you all the credit in the world, my friend. You went in the right direction. You purchased your property and you controlled your destiny. Well, thank you for that, Sal. I appreciate it. And you mentioned this is a young person's business and we talked about the challenges and how difficult this business is. I actually sold multiple restaurants five years ago, changed my life, started this online company and then sort of... Uh, Well, on a lark, I'm back in the business now, just purchased a place about three months ago. We see it as a scalable opportunity, but I'm a little old for this, Sal. It's beating me up a bit and we're putting the long hours in because we see the vision and it's going to take a lot of hands-on to get it where it's going to go. And, uh, you know, my, but the best thing is my, my young kids are starting to work there and they're learning the life skills of getting behind the counter, work, serving the customers, you know, learning the POS system, doing the dishes. I mean, they're doing it all. So there's a benefit there for them. Let me ask you again. uh, So we started the first location in Salem, New Hampshire. How long was it before you opened number two, number three, number four? And where did those next locations uh, go in? What was the timeline there, if you could take us there? Well, I think what's interesting about my concept, as opposed to other concepts that exist today, the concept that I had, Roger, was all I did is sell pizza and soda when I first opened. So I was able to focus on one product, do it exceptionally well, and try to do as much business as I could. And by focusing on one product, by being the person that made the product, sold the product, manufactured the product from raw materials, I was able to really control my labor costs. And I think labor costs is a funny word when you're an entrepreneur. It's really, when I look at it and they say, well, what was your labor cost? The labor cost was my blood, sweat, and tears. And no matter how long it took me, that's what it was. And whatever was left over after I paid my bills and I paid my food expenses, well, that was my profit in order to invest into the next floor. So based on those ideas that I had, I, I was able and blessed enough to bring one of my family members in. My Nicholas Lapoli came into the business and he was really my rock, a support for me, my younger brother. He was attending Northeastern at the time. So we opened up this little square foot place, 700 square feet up in Salem, New Hampshire. Nine months later, I identified a location, and it took me a year and a half from the time I opened the first location to the time I opened the second location. And I'll tell you why, Roger. Because opening one store to go to two stores, still a little challenging with the lender. I was only open for nine months. Not a lot of record there, not a lot of track 
uh, um, track to, to be able to absorb and understand my business. So what did I do? I would take money every single week from the business, whatever the profit was, and I would go to the contractors that I hired and I would pay them by the week in order to do the amount of work in the business that this building needed. Now, you can imagine exactly what you described when you're an entrepreneur and, and you're, you buy a building, you, you don't have enough money to buy maybe the building you want, so you settle on something that might not be in the right location, but it's yours. So based on that seven or 800 bucks a week that I was making, I would pour it back into the building. So one and a half years after the first location, uh, probably September of 1991, I opened the second location. And that was really a game changer. I owned the real estate. I didn't have any debt on it because I took the money from the first one and put it right into the second one. I really watched the budget on that and I really was careful and as a result of it, that two location concept that I had at that point was really the difference to where uh, it launched us. And then from that point on, very rarely did I ever rent a location again. That's a beautiful story. I love it. Where was the next location and then the one after that? It was in North Andover, Massachusetts. And what I did was nice. sometimes entrepreneurs they get really excited about the business they're in. And we're talking about the hospitality business today, Roger. So let's just uh, stay focused on the pizza business. Sometimes pizza operators, when they have lightning in the bottle, or they open the first location and they're extremely successful. They have a tendency to go to larger markets. Uh, for example, I've seen people say, well, I've opened you know, 30, min uh, 30 miles north of Boston. I'm going right to Boston for my second location. Why? It's sexy. Why? It's a big city. Why? There's a lot of people. I didn't do that. What I did was this. I did some market research on my own, and I spoke to my customers, and I got an understanding of where the majority of the customers outside of Salem-centric they were coming from. And the majority I got of the people there were coming from the next community over, which was North Andover, Massachusetts. So what did I do? I focused on North Andover. And as I started creating this radius around, we'll call the hub, which was Salem, New Hampshire, I would go just outside a seven or eight or 10 mile radius of Salem, New Hampshire. And whatever community that touched, if it was a draw to the original location, that's where I focused on next. So much like dominoes, as opposed to leapfrogging over different locations or different communities, I stayed very close to each community. I went from community to community to community all abutting each other, all being able to utilize that marketing strategy because chances are if you were in North Andover and you were eating my pizza, then people in Andover or Methuen or some of the adjacent communities also recognized your name. And from the name recognition, we were able to capitalize on that. Correct. So that's brand building 101 right there, folks, because- 23 years old. And now you're cross-marketing locations, and when people happen to be in the neighboring communities, they're eating at Sal's in that other location, and the buzz just sort of grows from there. And when you're starting to see that logo in different locations, they realize that this is an established brand. It's a growing brand, and it stands for quality. I think that's wonderful. And, you know, I think what's really exciting about it is, you know, I, I, uh, six months after graduating college, I was 22 years old. I was in, into my first really owned piece of real estate. I was 23 years old. So this journey that I was on started at a very young age. You know, to, to your point, when you walked in that bank, they saw just a, 
young college graduate, you know, 23 years old. You know, what do you know about the business? What do you know about being an entrepreneur? So it took us quite a long time to establish credibility before we were able to really create a force. So I see a perfect transition now to talk about your personal leadership and management style, because obviously when you start to scale a business, you can't be everywhere at once and you need to establish systems in place. And the commissary was certainly a huge system, but that doesn't necessarily touch on that personal touch and the people and the relationship part of this business where the staff you hire have to be, you know, your best foot forward for the customer. So let's talk about the trickle down and how you manage people and how you motivate people and how you put management in place in the different locations and how they report to you, the accountability, all that would be tremendous to hear. Well, first of all, culture is everything in my business. I often talk, I, I, I was blessed enough to go back to college and get my MBA at MIT Sloan. And I was there for a year and I learned a lot of valuable lessons in my life. But I will tell you that culture will always eat strategy for breakfast every day of the week. You can have the best strategy in the world. You can have the best concept in the world. But if you don't create the right culture or the right team, then I promise you, you will, you'll be able to accomplish nothing. So very in the very early on in my business, I always wanted to create the right culture. I wanted to create an establishment or a program where people wanted to work. They wanted to grow in a business. And the business that we're in, Roger, we're in a business that there's high employee turnover. Why? For sure. Personality, age that we hire. At a very young age, I started to do things that really wasn't common in the restaurant industry or the fast food industry back then. Certainly maybe at the larger businesses, but when you were a small entrepreneur, one of the first things that I did is my employees had insurance, of which back then you could afford to pay the whole amount. So I paid everybody's medical insurance that came in here. I, didn't, I wasn't able to put these 401k or SEPs or any one of these um, investment programs together for the employees. So what did I do? I created bonus structures based on the volume we would do. I created bonus structure based on the profitability that we were doing at that time. And I would literally write them a check once a month in order to show my appreciation. I brought them in and I made them very much part of the future of the company. I think sometimes in leadership and leadership matters, I think sometimes you can create or make a mistake as a leader and think because of the how busy you are, or the work that you're doing, that your employees, geez, they might not be, um, they might not be at a level to understand maybe financing or locations or things like that. So leaders or entrepreneurs sometimes make mistakes in overlooking the value or the level of intelligence of their employees. And this is what I mean, Roger. I would let my employees know on a weekly kind of a conversation exactly where we wanted to go. We talked about locations. During the downtimes, I would meet them early in the morning and I would bring those employees to locations, even if they were part-timers, Roger. Why? I wanted them to make them feel part of the business. I wanted them to make them feel that they had a voice. When you can create that kind of voice or partnership or relationship with your employees, you're now building a culture. And once you build the right culture, They'll walk on water for you, Roger. 
I can't disagree with you at all on that, Sal. That is absolutely foundational. The staff are the foundation of your business, but that the way that you're managing and leading by example and involving them in the business, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. That is so beautiful. You know, Roger, today we have an organization. Uh, it's a very exciting, and we are certainly blessed, and I'm humbled to be around so many talented people. But we have about 1,000 employees today. Uh, 600 of them are still in the hospitality side of the business. We have about 50 flags out there that represent Sal's Pizza or, or other establishments that we own and operate or, or uh, control, uh, franchises for that matter. But I'll tell you what, when I have my corporate meetings and I sit down or we have our staff meetings, I always remind people what motivates this organization. And what makes me run to work is I look into the audience and I look at my employees and I realize they're the secret of the success here. It's not the product, Roger, right? It's not the concept. It's not the structure. It's not the, the marketing tools that we use. It's not. It's the employee. And I always tell people, you're wrong if you think you're putting the customer first. It's not the customer. It's the people that are touching the customer. It's your employees. Take your employees, embrace them, make them part of the family, make them part of the fabric of your business. And from there, you'll be able to accomplish great things. If you want to separate them and keep them in the dark, well, then all you're going to do is allow them to think outside the box, think I'm not really a part of this organization. I'm not part of the successes, and I'm certainly not part of the failures. And that's really key, Roger. If your employees don't think they're a part of your organization, then what are you really, what's the stickiness that is keeping them there? And therefore, you'll have a revolving door of employees, which is the worst thing to have in our business. Especially today with the labor shortage, where restaurants across the country are struggling with finding and keeping and motivating the great staff. You know, that is absolutely, absolutely correct. Foundational to the core are the, you know, the lessons that you just, um, you know, that you just shared with us. Absolutely true. You talked about bonusing the management team on a monthly basis. I think that's smart. Are there any specific recognition or rewards programs that you've put in place to, you know, single out? I shouldn't even use that word single out, but to recognize, you know, key line staff as well that contribute to the customer experiences and the quality. Absolutely. You know, on a quarterly basis, on a quarterly basis, I'll bring as many employees within the whole poly companies together. I'll bring maintenance people together with counter people together with food managers together with front of the house back of the house maintenance construction we'll bring all these people together and this is what we do during those meetings we recognize employees based on longevity based on their success of their particular program that they're working and we'll single them out and we'll talk about what's important to them i'll actually have a story or a particular moment of what they did that was incredibly successful Sometimes the smallest deed in our organization, I will sing from the highest mountain of the success that is. And, and not just because I believe in the little things that make you successful, but I believe in recognizing the employees that do the little things. Because those are the people that are working really hard for you. In the business that we're in, we're in a part-time business. A lot of our employees are part-time because of the labor shortage today. And it's those little things when that employee comes in that they're doing, I want to recognize those littlest things. I want to recognize when Roger, the employee, comes in an extra 20 minutes early to get some side work done. I want to recognize that and let everybody know how dedicated you are. And as a result of 
recognizing you will often give you a small gift, whether it's a food um, a certificate or a, a gift card to a, another restaurant or something out there, tickets to a show, um, dinner with an with a Uber ride on us. And many of the times when I hire you, Roger, if I hire a, a man uh, for the organization, I'll send his wife flowers and tell her how much I appreciate her allowing her husband to work in the organization. And when I hire a woman, and, and by the way, I think we're most proud of the poly companies is 77% of all our employees of the poly companies are women, minorities. Um, we're very blessed to be in that situation. And if I was to hire a woman, I would send her husband a card with a gift certificate inside telling her how much we appreciate the amount of time that, that his or her spouse or uh, a significant other is working for the organization. So I just won't recognize the employee. I'll recognize their family around it. These are all beautiful ideas, Sal. These, these are, well, it, it just goes to your, to the core values of your company, but what an impact and what a message that brings to the entire family that works for you. Yeah. I have a meeting this, this week, as a matter of fact, coming up and it's with an employee that I'm recruiting and they're out of New York and I asked them to fly up, but I asked them not just to fly up by himself. I said, would it be okay if you brought your wife and my wife and you and your wife, we can all go out to dinner? Because I want the whole family to understand. I want the spouse uh, on either side to understand. This is not just about working really hard. What you're about to do is make, hopefully, create the last job you're ever going to have. And we want it to be with the Lapoli companies. And I'm going to sit down and I want you to watch the words come out of my mouth. Not listen, but watch them come out. Roger, because everything I say, I mean, and by looking people in the eye, especially their spouse, whether it's a male or female spouse, I think there's a sense of a bond there, a level of trust from the very beginning. And oftentimes, certainly in a market that we have today, you have to create some kind of competitive advantage, some kind of an edge that separates you from everyone else. But it's not just enough to do it one time. You have to be an all the time kind of a provider of this information or this feeling or this culture because employees they're incredibly brilliant they will look right through and i don't care what age you are the youngest 16 or 17 years old to the most seasoned veteran that are in their 60s or 70s that work for our organization they understand honesty loyalty they understand that what is right and what is wrong and i think what we do that's incredibly great uh, you're able to look us in the eyes Talk to the other employees and say, this isn't an accident. This isn't just a show. He's not on stage. This is the way this organization is all the time. And the more all the time you can be, the more successful you'll be, Roger. Culture is just jumping out at me right now. That is another foundational element. And it sounds to me like systems being what they are and how important they are, you must have a very effective staff training system in place as well to maintain, you know, the core standards that you've set and raise the bar continually and just make sure that the end result is a very satisfied customer experience that then leads to, you know, social media, online reviews, word of mouth, all that positive buzz. And that's also part of the brand building. Can you speak to any specific staff training that you've instituted in your locations? Absolutely. I don't know how to coin it. So it's going to sound so cliche, Roger, but we have what we call the gold standard. 
right? And it's literally our manual and we call it the gold standard. And there are online videos that you have to follow when we first work into the organization. You, we put you in stores around all the, we'll call it uh, the, the most seasoned veterans in the organization. But you have to understand what our, our manual, and I think what's so exciting is, you know, some of these processes and systems that we put into place, you see them in Fortune 500 companies, or you hear some of the same phrases, you know, standards and systems and operations and manuals. When you talk about in the hospitality business, it's a little unusual for entrepreneurs to put these programs together at a very early on. So these systems that we put together, this gold standard that we create, also helps to create the culture because everybody's working on the same page. You're able to look at the manuals in every one of the buildings. You're able to look at the manuals that we sent you home. We're able to take tests about that. And our test isn't, you know, the, the tests and the rigorous uh, lifestyle we had when we were in college or we were in some kind of, you know, secondary learning school or tertiary learning school. You know, these tests are actually interactive tests. You'll be right next to the pizza maker or the manager and somebody will come up from behind and you'll say, hey, listen, you got a new guy over here and we're looking for you to start teaching them. You might be only on board for a couple of weeks or even a month, Roger, but we're going to put you under the gun a little bit because we want you to transfer whatever knowledge you have to the new person. But it does two things, Roger. First of all, it gives you an impact that you have a, that yes, I do have a voice in this organization, but it also shows the people around that, you know what? Very quickly, you're going to be asked in, in, in a different way to transfer some of this knowledge that you're learning from these systems and processes. And if you don't transfer them the way we expected or you're we're a little disappointed because you might not know it, then what we'll do is after work, we'll sit down with you on a one-on-one -on -one and we'll say, what do we need to do to support you a little bit more? So very much we have a gold standard in every one of our locations. We have a gold standard from not only cleaning the store, but making the, how many pepperonis go on a pizza, but also in the restaurants that we have, the, uh, the brand that we carry. We also have continuing training teams that go from store to store, and their job is only uh, to educate, and they'll stand right next to you, and uh, they're there next to you for a day, and they're asking you all kinds of questions, but they're just watching you. And if there's anything wrong, they'll have an impromptu conversation and say, I think we can do things better this way as opposed to that's wrong, you're doing it the wrong way. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. In fact, the word that jumps out at me is empowerment. So you're empowering what I call your A team to train and develop your Bs that have very similar attributes as the As. They just are lacking a little polish, a little practice, a little experience, and pretty much you're going to have what I call the dream team by following that philosophy. And then, then the, the whole tide just rises in the organization based on the core gold standard philosophies that you're telling us about. That's awesome. You, you know, Roger, we'll bring professional uh, coaches in periodically. We'll have staff training sessions. And sometimes these professional individuals that will come in, they'll talk about sales. How do you upsell in the restaurants? How do you upsell in the retail stores? They'll talk about confidence building. They'll talk about teamwork. And I'll let you know this. I'm the first one in that space. I'm the first one in that classroom. I sit up front and I'm the first one to ask questions. I want my team to know that because we put these together, even I 
as the CEO of the company, I want to learn every single day. And if they look to their right and they see their CEO asking questions, front of the class, taking it incredibly serious, it's hard for them not to also take it incredibly serious. That's a perfect example of, of leading by example. And I think the biggest part of that also comes back to the culture. And, you know, I, I always leave my employees with this phrase, who you are is where you came from. And that phrase itself, my employees, who are they? They come from a long line of hardworking individuals within our organization. And hopefully the oldest ones in the organizations are able to teach. And even in my life growing up, who I am is where I came from. I learned from those life lessons you spoke about earlier, Roger, that we learned from our parents or we learned from a loved one or a coach or a teacher. And I think those those are very impactful times in my life. And I often talk about who you are is where you came from. And you're also, I can't speak for you, Sal, but I'm just getting this strong sense that you're a big believer in promoting from within and giving people opportunities that deserve and have earned those opportunities within your companies. We've done some things that I've never seen, and I'm going to say this humbly, respectfully. We've some, done some things in our organizations that I've never seen in other hospitality businesses. And what were they? Well, not only do we have Sal's Pizza, but we carry probably another four or five different brands out there that do various things, whether it's in the pizza business or the sandwich business or the full dining experience or the wholesale business. We have different names representing those brands. One of the brands that we have is called Salvatore's Fine Dining Restaurants. Now, this Salvatore's brand that we created is just what it is. It's a, it's a fast, casual restaurant. It's a full-service restaurant with waiters and waitresses and, and uh, always uh, beer and wine or alcohol in the establishments, your typical Italian restaurant. Several years ago, I took a step back and I said, in order for us to continue in the development business and to continue in other aspects of our business, sometimes you have to give things away or give things up in order to move forward. The restaurant business, incredibly challenging business, much harder than a fast food business, two clear different businesses. I decided to give to my five most loyal managers the five prize restaurants of the Salvatore's brands that I had invested up until that point of well over $12 million in infrastructure, build-outs. And what I did was I sold them the business, no money down, no interest, and I took back the paper for 10 years, in some instances, 12 years. In some instances, those loyal managers that were with me, and if you aggregate the number of years between the managers that I gave this opportunity, gave this opportunity to, it amounts to over 70 years of experience with me. So how can I not show my employees, show my managers my appreciation? And today, I'm proud to tell you that the day that they took over, in some instances, their salary as a result of the profit doubled overnight. So that's just a form of loyalty. That was a form of me showing. If you go online, you're able to see that, us toasting a glass of champagne to those loyal managers. But what did that do, Roger? That also showed an example. If I work hard in this company, you will be rewarded. And reward doesn't come from sometimes money that you put up, right? Sometimes people say, I work really hard and I save it. Maybe I could buy into that. It also comes from hard work, could also mean sweat equity. 
And that's what those managers gave me because when you're raising a family, it's really hard to raise a family, live life, and do a lot of savings in order to give yourself an opportunity. So what did I do, Roger? I gave them the opportunity as a result of being loyal to me and as a result of making a statement that who we are is where we came from. And where we came from was a, a very generous family that believed in the word family. And it doesn't necessarily mean, Roger, the same blood that runs through your vein and my vein means we're family. Family means loyalty, dedication. And you can get that through hard work and being uh, a great employee in my organization. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very noble. It's beautiful. It's humble. It's, And it's not just... I can't imagine how much personal satisfaction just that one action alone has given you. I'm sure you've been paid back tenfold in terms of productivity and increased profits and just, you know, how the whole idea of what you just presented has up leveled your entire organization and how's that how that's motivated staff across all of your companies, just knowing that you have that approach to your business. That's just so beautiful. Thanks for you know sharing that. You know, you, oh. you, I'm going to share one more thing with it's you. Amazing. I'm going to share something. You talked about motivating my staff. And you're right. But I'm going to tell you one more secret. It motivated me, Roger. It motivated me to run to work and open new businesses to change the employees' lives. It motivated me to create, think outside the box and do things differently and always be innovative and creative. Why? Because I have a thousand people that depend on me. And that's the motivation I, I love and I enjoy and I embrace. So by doing certain things for our individuals in our organization, it actually motivates me to even work harder. And I enjoy it and I love it and I'm blessed to be in this kind of a situation. Let me shift gears and ask you about marketing. I know you've got something that you call the three pound, 19 inch pizza. Do you still do that to this day? Or is that an early promotion that sort of helped you build the brand? And what other things do you do for marketing? Roger, you're very wise to to use that phrase because in the very beginning, that's exactly what that was. That was a marketing program that I put together. Do I still carry that product today? Absolutely. It's really not the centric part of the business that it was 30 years ago, right? 30 years ago, if you rewind the clock, there was no delivery per se. Right. 30 years ago, if you rewind the clock, value in, in food was so important to a family. You know, you could come to a sales pizza. When I first opened Roger, I sold a 19-inch, three-pound pizza for $4.99. So people would want literally have lines in my store to buy this product. I want the 19 inch three pound. But as in everything in life, no ball stays up in the air forever. Things changed. Uh, society changed. The way we do business changed. The way customers purchase items changed. So our p- product also changed. Can you still find that 19 inch three pound jumbo pizza we call it today? Absolutely. But we've now really come up with different products that kind of meet your palate in a different way. Today, quantity is not as as important as uh, maybe a delivery part of the aspect of business. Uh, Quantity is important as maybe uh, the the actual size of it. Back then, 19-inch three-pound pizza was really important. Today, it's too much people look at. It's too much of uh, uh, of a product for our family. We'd rather get smaller items and maybe different items. So 
we've really tailored that, but it was in the very beginning, very, very strong marketing tool that we used. We still have it today, but it's not centric or focused primarily in our business. Well, again, part of the heritage of your company and people still remember it and people still order it. So That's right. They remember sales pizza. They remember quality. They remember value because no matter what product we produce, we produce a valuable product. Uh, and they were, and they know, uh, you know, still that quality, that that size. Even though it's not that 19 inch, it's still a wonderful size, bigger than the average one, but not that jumbo that we used to produce. Let me emphasize that word quality. I know you stand for, you know, 100 percent, no artificial ingredients and no preservatives and fresh, not frozen and homemade, you know, doughs and sauces and all those things. And even the olive oil you're using and everything that you mentioned is the highest quality it can be. And especially in a business that tends to cut corners and try to save a buck because costs are rising all the time. You've taken a stand for that and you've continued that. That's that's wonderful as well. And your customers appreciate that. And they understand it. That's part of your marketing as well. Just knowing that you stand for fresh and quality. Well, I think I think it becomes part of who you are, right, Roger? You know, when you look at what we've done in the real estate industry, and we probably have close to 5 million square feet of real estate that we own and operate and manage very vertically integrated in the real estate world. You know, those retail stores that I used to buy, Roger, uh, it came a period after several years. Why was I just buying a 1,500 square foot location? I started buying 3,000 square foot locations, take a third of it for sales pizza or half of it for sales and then rent the balance. And these 3,000 square foot locations grew to you know, 20,000 square foot plazas. And I think what's important is as a result of that strategy and being in the hospitality business, put me in the in an unbelievable position to be in the real estate industry. And, and that real estate industry, I took the same values, the same beliefs that made us successful in the hospitality business. I brought them over to the real estate business because, and, and, I'll, and I'll surmise it with this, only the best is a bargain. And if you're out there shopping and I go to Roger's store, I want quality. I want a really competitive price or a good price, a fair price. I want great service. So if you use inferior products, and my grandfather brought that over from Naples, as a matter of fact, and he would tell my father, only the best is a bargain. So you can pretend or try to mask or adulterate certain items in the food industry, but the customer will eventually know. So by taking that saying, only the best is a bargain, I took it over to the real estate When you look at our real estate, you'll see only the finest pieces of real estate out there, clean, organized, we're we're on the job every single day, we manage the real estate ourselves, so there's someone to communicate to. Same values as hospitality, brought them over to real estate, and when that same methodology of only the best is a bargain with food, we do it in real estate. You mentioned earlier that when you first started in the first store, it was just pizza and soda. How has the menu evolved over the years and how has it grown and how much different today is it than when you first started? So probably still about 85% of our business, Roger, is still within very much pizza centric. We've done some other things outside the box that we've not talked about, but that has helped support the business. And what do I mean by that? 
Well, that commissary that I described to you that we started in the year 2000, I built a 30,000 square foot USDA FDA plant. And within that plant was the distribution center for all of these satellite stores that I put together. Within that plan, I also decided to go into the supermarket or the school business. And what do I mean by that? Roger, when you and I were in school, we got pizza when? On a Friday, it was usually a frozen pizza. And we were pretty happy about it. Today, it's a little different. In 1990, I started delivering pizzas to schools. I convinced them that uh, to take the pizza in a, in a more fresh way as opposed to a frozen way. I came up with a concept to make it easier on the lunchroom cafeteria workers. And today, we're the largest wholesaler of fresh pizza in New England. We probably do 20% of the schools in the state of Massachusetts. We're in New Hampshire, Connecticut. And that business has helped supplement or allowed us to be very focused on our core business, which was pizza. So whereas other businesses along their journey had to add other items to their menu to support the changing appetite or to support the business itself, we found other businesses to support it as opposed to adding ingredients or different items to a menu. We like to keep things simple for the employees and the the public. So 85% of our menu is still pizza centric. Uh, Do we have a calzone? Sure, we know what that is. That's a pizza folded over. Do we have some small variety of custom sandwiches in one or two of the stores. Sure, it's based on the amount of traffic or logistically where it's located and the calling that people had. But that's pretty much our business. We've just found other businesses to support the growth of our company as opposed to expanding menus. And sometimes they dilute your core business or dilute who you are. I think you serve about 12,000 pizzas a week to these schools, Sal, something like that. Yeah, it's, as a matter of fact, it might be a little more. It might be closer to 15,000 pizzas okay. to school systems by 10 o'clock in the morning. And really, we were, able to, uh, we were able to take the commissary, which supported the retail stores, and create a secondary business in there. We were able to take that same refrigerated truck that's delivering product to the stores during the course of the day and utilize it for the morning to deliver pizzas to school. So sometimes... You create a concept based on the tools you already have in your toolbox. They're right in front of you. You just don't see it. I advocate, and I will say this, Roger, I'm not going down too many lanes. Stay in your lane. Stay what you do well. Don't try to over-diversify. But if you think about it, we are in the logistic business. We're in the commissary business. It was not a big stretch to create a production facility and produce pizzas to schools. I'm also seeing this as a marketing strategy. I mean, you're wholesaling 15,000 pizzas a week to schools, but you're doing two things. You're creating that brand with the young people in these schools, and now they want to get Sal's Pizza outside of school, so they're convincing their families, hey, let's go to Sal's Pizza, right? You're absolutely right. And you're creating fans for life is what you're doing. Absolutely correct, and that's what we would do. In the very beginning, I went myself to the school systems and I interacted with the kids and was able to talk about it. And we would put scholarships together and programs together for the kids and, you know, free pizza days or make, or come into Sal's Pizza with the, the, the child that read the most books in school potentially and have contests where they would make their own pizza or do something that was really recognize them and support the school. I was a football coach 
for 15 years. I was on my school committee of my town. So I'm very active and I, and I really applaud and ask my employees to become par, part of the com- community they're in. Become, and my motto is become part of the fabric of your community. And they'll recognize, they'll trust you, they'll believe in you. And therefore, when they think pizza, hopefully they'll think of sales. I'm sure that happens. That's wonderful. Fantastic. Last question, Sal. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about how you transitioned from pizza to real estate. And I'm getting the sense that it really started by you sourcing or finding the new locations for the stores. But now suddenly you control, uh, you mentioned a, a staggering amount of real estate square footage in you know your local communities as well. How did you transition to that business? So you remember early on, we talked about what was your exit strategy? Almost we're in a full circle now, Roger, because in the very early on, we talked about you know the first day that I started work, I said, okay, how am I gonna exit this? So the idea to open real estate because I had an affinity for it was not just because it's a profitable uh, endeavor and it also appreciates you know 100% of the time if you're buying good locations or even average locations, it's going to appreciate over time. But what it did was this. Going back to the beginning when we talked about it's a young woman or a young man's business, I said to myself, by the time I'm 50 years old, I hope to be able to pass on Sal's Pizza to a family member or put it in a position that one of my managers or employees could take it over. The hospitality business itself. And then the second part of my life would be the real estate business. And where I could own and operate real estate, much of it would be affiliated or started by Sal's Pizza. So that concept that we had or that I created really came to fruition, right, Roger? I started with these small stores and I went to bigger plazas and then I started buying bigger buildings with the concept of always creating quality buildings or quality experience for my customer, whether it was somebody in fine dining or the restaurant or the quick serve somebody that was leasing space in their company or their residential unit. So that transitioned into a, a very exciting business with the eighth largest commercial developer in the state of Massachusetts. That, that is sometimes I got to pinch myself because that's a really, really big number. Uh, we probably have well over 200 million in construction going on as we speak right now of different buildings we're building from the ground up. And it all started with a slice of pizza. Well, Sal, you've been a tremendous inspiration to our audience in terms of how you approach a business and how you build a brand and how you, you know, pivot and how you expand a business and how you recognize employees and lead by example. We've covered so much ground here and there are so many key learnings that I'm so excited to share with the audience. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time and being part of the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Roger, I can't thank you enough for asking me on your show today and I'm excited. If there's anything I could ever do for you in the future, if there's anything else you'd like to talk about, I'd be happy to do that. God bless and good luck, my friend. God bless you as well, Sal. Thank you so much. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you in the next episode. That's fantastic. Thanks again, Sal. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. What an inspiring episode. You know, we had so many key learnings and takeaways from listening to Sal, how he grew from one humble location to a multifaceted hospitality and real estate enterprise. And it really came down to his leadership style, didn't it? And his vision, his inspiration, 
and how we put pieces in place that just naturally led to the next step and the next step. That's what it's all about in this business. This is also the business of relationships, right? It's about networking. It's about learning and best practices and how we can improve our own business. Whether you have, again, one single unit or multiple locations, you always want to be competitive and move that business forward. You know, I love talking shop with operators. If you have a challenging pain point or something that just keeps you up at night about your restaurant or your hospitality business, why not reach out to me, Roger, R-O-G-E-R at restaurantrockstars.com. I love having uh, half-hour consultations with people, just talking shop, no obligation, of course, but we can help you systemize your business, improve your business, increase profitability, train your staff. There's so much we can do. So why not reach out to me? Thanks again for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes, and I can't wait to see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.